Welcome to the Modern Medicine Movement Podcast with Dr. Thomas Hemingway. Have you ever looked in the mirror and said to yourself, I thought I'd be healthier and better shape, feel better both physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and be further along in my life? If so, come on this journey with my dad as he explores all things health and wellness from a holistic, medical perspective, even as a classically trained physician. He'll share integrative strategies to optimize health and inspire you to join the modern medicine movement. Welcome, 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 welcome to the Modern Medicine Movement Podcast. Super pumped, guys. Super grateful to be here with you. I'm broadcasting from Hawaii, Ne. Oh my gosh, guys, what a beautiful, beautiful spring day. Seems like summer. It's getting warm. <laughs> Thank goodness for these natural winds we call the trade winds because they provide our only AC in many of our homes, including mine. We, uh, we love opening up the windows and letting this cool breeze rush through. It invigorates, it vitalizes, and most importantly, it cools us off a bit. So, <laughs> so grateful. We have plenty of wind today. It's beautiful. I got a little vitamin D you guys that are watching on YouTube or uh, the Zoom video, which uh, is pretty awesome. I got uh, transcripts for you guys, uh, especially to help out our hearing impaired. And if you guys know anybody that, that needs the transcripts, um, they'll be available. So anyway, <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for Oh my gosh, listening. I just, I love, love, love doing this. I'm so grateful for you guys. This is why I do this each and every week. And today, ah, oh, I got this topic that's, it's been pressing on my mind for many years now. And we just had a really touching Zoom call, I think about a week ago, where I met a couple of my wife uh, Brooke's friends who struggle with cancer, and these are just champions of women. They are just crushing their illness, and they talked about their story and oh, their resilience and what they're doing with lifestyle, diet, supplementation, all these things to just optimize and really do their best to fight this illness, which unfortunately is super, super common. In fact, the top two, it's right after heart disease as a leader in causing mortality or, or death in the world, especially in the U.S. right now. And they even forecast that it may overtake heart disease because we haven't made a lot of progress, unfortunately, in curing or fighting cancer in the last 50 years. We've made a little, and we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about some exciting things, which I really hope we can incorporate in addition to the conventional and typical treatments. There's a couple other um, natural therapies, which in adjunct or in association and combined with the traditional therapies, um, I really think we can optimize and maximize the treatment. So super exciting stuff I'm going to share about today. 
Um, before I get into it, just wanted to uh, shout out one of our recent reviews of our Modern Medicine Movement podcast. If you guys haven't done a review yet, please do that. It helps so much with discoverability, with people finding the show. I've had people reach out recently that have just found the show and they've emailed me, asked me questions, and it's because of you guys. So thank you for doing the reviews on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do. You just scroll down to where you see the five stars. Click on that star farthest to the right. That's your right side to the right. And you click on that. And then you uh, right below, there's a link with a little square and a pencil coming off the top, I think, to the left um, side of the screen. Just click on that link and type up a review. I just love, 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 love your review. So this week, I wanted to share another five-star review from Beginner Scrabbler. And this person says, it's titled, Love These Informative and Educational Podcasts. And this person says, quote, I have a very nerdy side and absolutely love the info and education from these podcasts by Dr. Thomas Hemingway. The one I listened to today gave some convincing and encouraging advice for simple lifestyle changes one can make in areas of diet, exercise, and supplementation. So insightful! Exclamation point. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and encouraging so many to live their healthiest and happiest lives. Thank you so much, beginner scrabbler. Oh, that's so encouraging to me. I mean, at the end of the day, this really why I do the show. I love hearing from you guys. I love hearing how I can add value to you, to your family, to your friends, all those people you care about. So please continue to write reviews. Please share, tag somebody, share the link. Um, and have them write a review. Anybody that writes a review, it just really, really, really ups the discoverability factor on iTunes and other platforms. So thank you in advance for doing that. So grateful. And also, if you don't know about it, I have a free Facebook group entitled The Modern Medicine Movement Health and Wellness Facebook Group. And it's going to be exciting in there coming up, guys. I'm actually going to be releasing. You guys will be the first to know a brand new full course that will be available um, real soon. It's a, it's a full course that I've put together on simple steps to be able to achieve your healthiest life. And it's going to talk about nutrition, you know, what things should and shouldn't be in your diet. We're going to have a page. I'm going to have PDFs in there, uh, for example, pages on what to toss from your pantry, some simple healthy option ideas and food selection, what's on the to-eat list and what's on the not-to-eat list. We'll also talk about things like movement, my favorite, right? Vitamin M. We'll talk about some of my favorite vitamins like vitamin D, vitamin <laughs> M I mentioned, right? And vitamin N or nature as well as uh, optimizing things like sleep. And it's a really awesome course. I think you guys are going to love it. I'll give you guys the first chance to go and grab it for a pretty, pretty darn, oh my gosh, it's going to be super affordable. I'm going to give you guys a great, great, great price on it. It's just literally taken me years to get all the information together, and I can't wait. I'm going to be releasing it in one week. You guys will be the first to know, those that are in my Modern Medicine Movement uh, Health and Wellness Facebook group. So, so excited about that, guys. A new course. Uh, complete with PDFs, videos. Ah, oh, it's going to be awesome. 
Anyway, let's get into it. This week's topic is going to be on sugar and cancer. Sugar. <laughs> Anybody out there ever saw the original uh, Men in Black <laughs> with Will Smith? Have you guys seen that? One of the one of the guys on there says something like, "Give me sugar in water now." And I guess an alien had already taken over this guy's body, and so his wife turns to him and said, "I never seen sugar do that." Something like that, but <laughs> it's a classic, classic line. <laughs> From the original Men in Black with Will Smith. Shout out to Will Smith. So <laughs> I love that movie. It just cracks me up. Anyway, so sugar and cancer, are they related? What's the deal? Anyway, I just wanted to talk about this topic and a little bit more just in general about cancer because so many of us have either been affected ourselves or have a friend or a family member that's been affected by some type of cancer because it is so dang common out there. Like I mentioned at the outset, the second leading cause of death right now in the world is cancer after only heart disease being number one. And unfortunately, there haven't been that many advances in the last 50 years, really. And um, the cancer rates in general have been increasing as compared to uh, heart disease, which has been decreasing. So some even project that cancer could be the leading or the number one cause of death uh, within the next several decades. And I really hope that's not the case because I really feel like there are things that we can do, um, both preventative and with uh, respect to treatment, that we can be able to add to other available therapies. Now, once again, although I am a doctor, I am a physician, this is not medical advice. This podcast is simply for educational and enjoyment purposes, all right? I'm not pretending to treat or diagnose any illness. I'm not uh, giving you medical advice. You should discuss any changes in your healthcare regimen um, with your healthcare provider. So, with that caveat, I want to share with you a little bit of why this means so much to me. I, about five or six years ago, was given a diagnosis of a type of cancer. And I haven't really shared this publicly because it there's a lot of, you know, real emotional um, content to this. And it's, it's something that uh, was real heavy on my mind, my wife's mind, and um, I had this large uh, lump that was uh, biopsied, and uh, the preliminary results came back as cancer. It was a type of lymphoma. And um, when my doctor, my primary care doctor, got these results, uh, you know, he called me into the office and he's like, "Hey, um, your biopsy shows cancer, but it's just a lymphoma. A lot of people have cancer. It's no big deal." And I was like what the, you know, insert your four-letter explicative <laughs> of choice right there. But I, he said to me, it's no big deal. A lot of people have cancer. And I'm thinking, it's no big deal? I'm 40 years old. Like, it's a big deal. I have six kids. I have a lot to do yet in my life. I got to, you know, provide for my kids, my family, like, Cancer is a big deal, and so I respect and feel so much for anybody 
out there who either has a diagnosis or has a family member or a friend with a diagnosis of some type of cancer because it is a challenge. And like I said, I, I don't really agree with the approach of my primary doctor when he gave me this diagnosis. And I obviously wanted a second opinion right away. I, I saw an oncologist and um, she recommended we do a full excisional uh, biopsy in addition to lymph node dissection and removal of as many nodes as they could get to really get a better idea what was going on. And I also requested if we could send the pathology to a couple different pathologists because I wanted to literally have a second opinion on my initial diagnosis of lymphoma because I just wanted to make sure, you know, when you pursue treatment measures like radiation, chemotherapy, you know, all these kinds of things you want to, you want to really know what you're dealing with. So anyway, long story short, I had a surgery, I had lymph node uh, dissection and removal. They um, had some additional pathology and it came back on the final um, that it was atypical cells, but they did not think it was cancer. It might have been a early um, type of deranged um, anaplastic cell, they call it, and atypical, but they said it wasn't a definitive diagnosis of cancer and that I should just get rechecked over time. And that was a huge sigh of relief for me. Um, and it's something that I have to be in surveillance and we're certainly, um, you know, not out of the woods, so to speak, but it's something that, um, you know, I think about and I, I really helps me have perspective and some, you know, real sympathy, uh, for those that do have a cancer diagnosis because it, it's life-changing, but like with anything, there is something that we can all do. You know, we're not just left alone. There's so many great, helpful, um, both traditional treatments as well as natural and integrative, holistic uh, treatments that can be added upon, um, as I said earlier, adjunctive treatments, which can actually um, synergistically or helpfully together, you know, treat treat cancer. So anyway, um, sorry for the digression. It's just uh, just thinking about that day and and those several weeks um, during that time when I had my surgery and. Um, yeah, actually, come to think of it, uh, it was the second uh, surgery that I had uh, with respect to having funky, you know, tumors removed that that thus far have have been um, thankfully um, non-cancerous. But but I've had a couple times where we had to take lumps out that were thought cancerous, and yeah, just thinking about that, just almost uh, yeah, just re really makes me reflect. Um, anyway. Um, Wanted to talk about a little bit just at the outset um, where we are in the year 2021 with respect to just this uh, concept of cancer. What is it? Where does it come from? Why is it increasing? We'll talk about treatments, both traditional and up and coming, and we'll add in some really helpful natural therapies that are free and easy to do 
that can help with cancer. So I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the complete picture here, the holistic approach to not just cancer, but to many things in life. Um, we can we can use more than one modality. We don't have to just in isolation pick one therapy. We can get several and use them together, and they may have a combined beneficial or synergistic effect. And it's exciting because there are things like that with respect to cancer treatment that we'll talk about. And uh, and some of it involves those simple things that we've spoken of before, the macro and the micronutrients. If you guys remember um, way back, uh, geez, maybe 20 podcasts ago, I interviewed Dr. Benjamin Bickman and we talked about uh, insulin resistance and inflammation and his work that has shown insulin resistance um, to be a risk factor in developing inflammatory conditions such as cancer. Um, and 88% of us are insulin resistant. So I'll touch a little bit and remind ourselves on the importance of, of insulin sensitivity and how we can avoid insulin resistance or how we can just decrease it or improve it in ourselves. Because at the end of the day, guys, cancer primarily feeds off sugar. Yes, I said that. Cancer primarily feeds off sugar or glucose. So super, super important to consider this in the discussion in both cancer prevention and cancer treatment. We'll talk about the data. We'll talk about the different um, historical um, explanations and theories of this. It's actually quite an interesting historical scientific uh, lesson. And I, I find it, personally, I find it fascinating. I love science, obviously. <laughs> I'm real nerdy like that. And I just love, love, love science. But I also love history. And when they go together, it makes it even more interesting. So anyway, you guys have probably heard of some of my fans that talk about these topics in addition to Dr. Bickman, Dr. Mercola um, has talked about uh, cancer quite a bit in his work, in his book, Fat for Fuel. He has a whole chapter discussing um, his view of what's called the metabolic theory of cancer, uh, which is basically that cancer is primarily a metabolic disease. It's a problem with metabolism. And as we recall, metabolism primarily occurs at the level Inside the cell, in this little area, kind of this round organelle called the mitochondria. And it's been shown that cancer cells have, in many cases, deranged or dysfunctional mitochondria. And these mitochondria, as we've talked about before, are sort of the energy factories or the powerhouse or the power plant of the cells. This is where energy is made from the fuel that we give it, either glucose or healthy fats. Fats can turn into energy. In fact, they can turn into way more energy than glucose, right? Glucose primarily uh, undergoes a process called glycolysis, which can actually happen without oxygen. It can happen through what's called fermentation. And you actually can break down glucose or sugar. Glucose you can break down without oxygen, and it can even occur outside the mitochondria. And this has been shown in cancer cells to be the primary way they make energy is from the substrate 
or from the food, if you will, of glucose, which is sugar, which is basically the breakdown product of carbohydrates. So I'm not saying that you should stop eating carbohydrates, but it's very interesting to look at from a sort of cancer cells perspective, their primary fuel is carbohydrates or the end product of carbohydrates, which is glucose. In fact, they, most cancer cells cannot use ketones or can't use them effectively because they have deranged metabolism, deranged energy powerhouses or mitochondria. And so we can attempt to sort of starve cancer by paying attention to the carbohydrates in our diet and trying to limit them and especially limit those super highly processed ones that come in a package with a label that have all that nasty processed sugars and flours and high fructose corn syrup and all this kind of stuff because they not only will fuel cancer in addition to other healthy cells as well can get fueled by glucose. But the problem is that the cancer cells are much more aggressive at using that sugar and sort of uh, using that as their fuel source. And if they are deprived of it to some degree, their growth will be less. And this has been shown in many studies that uh, primarily cancer cells feed off of glucose. And if their glucose is limited through several different processes, either fasting, you know, such as even intermittent fasting or circadian fasting, like I've talked about recently. Um, I shared a study a couple of podcasts ago about uh, breast cancer survivors and a very simple overnight fast that I like to call circadian fasting. And this can actually reduce uh, cancer growth and cancer recurrence. And I would suggest that primarily it does so by this mechanism because the cancer is sort of being starved during this 13, 14 hour window of the overnight fast because there's no new glucose available because you're not eating. And what's available are ketones, which cancer cells can't really use that well. And most of them um, don't really use it at all. And so that's a super helpful technique to limit cancer growth or cancer recurrence, as it was shown in this uh, study I shared a couple of weeks ago. And um, I just find it fascinating because once again, it's natural, it's normal, our ancestors did it for thousands of years, right? They did an overnight fast where they basically didn't eat anything for probably 12 to 18 hours. You know, they went to bed when the sun went down at five or six, got up when the sun came up, and then they had to go chase their food down, you know? So it was probably 14, 16, 18 hours that they had a natural circadian fast. And guess what? For the most part, our ancestors um, didn't get cancer very often compared to us. It was super rare. And part of that may be uh, from this circadian fasting that they did. Part of it may be they just didn't have a bunch of junk food available to them. They couldn't go to a grocery store and buy a bunch of highly refined processed carbohydrates, you know, <laughs> that will trigger insulin. And we're going to talk a little bit about insulin because I just find it super fascinating um, how it can relate to not only insulin resistance, but you guys may have heard of before with respect to cancer, it is often talked about a sort of hormone called insulin-like growth factor. And we're going to talk a little bit about that um, here later. Um, but anyway, just getting uh, towards sort of this basic 
uh, root cause of cancer? Is it, you know, just in the genes or is it environment or is it both? Well, I would say that it's both, <laughs> right? Whenever you're doing a multiple choice question and you have the option, choose both or all of the above and you'll have a better chance at getting it right. <laughs> That's if you're guessing. If you really know the answer, just pick the right answer, dang it. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. I've done a lot of multiple choice tests in my life. And uh, anyway, um, so with respect to, um, is it in the genes or is it in the environment? What is it that causes cancer? Well, in truth, it's actually both. Both are important. But until recently, I think when we were starting to make some progress with the treatment of cancer, we sort of blamed almost all of it. <laughs> the overwhelming majority of cancer we blamed on the genes, right? Genetic mutation. And what we found in the last 20 years is that um, it's not that simple because actually when you take all comers, all the data, and you look at the genes available. In fact, you know, in the, around the year 2000, I forget what which year it was exactly, but right around 2000, we uh, basically were able to finish the entire human genome project. We got all the genes. We were able to write them all down. You know, we got all the base pairs. We got all the amino acids, and we were able to see all the cancer genes or what's called oncogenes. And, you know, then we started trying to be able to use these to diagnose identify and treat cancer. And in a couple cases, it's been helpful, but in a large extent, it hasn't nearly been as successful as we had hoped. And the reason for that is that we have found that really at the end of the day, depending on which studies you read, it's somewhere between five and 15% the genes and 85 to 95% everything else, which is the environment, which is behaviors, you know, what we do, the we part, the we part is 85 to 95% is the we part. And the genes are only five to 15% of the actual cause of cancer. And this sort of makes sense because when you think about the human genome, our human genome in the last, say, 200 years has changed way, way, way less than 1%. I mean, very little has our genome changed, which means that we've had either oncogenes, you know, cancer-causing genes, or pro-oncogenes, um, the precursors to cancer-causing genes. We've had these in our DNA for many, many years, hundreds, thousands of years. Yet, it wasn't until let's say the last 100 years, and more specifically the last 50 years, that we started getting cancer at much higher rates. So we can't just blame it on the genes. <laughs> genes are definitely a part of it. They are important, but actually the latest data suggests that they may only be responsible to about 5 to 15% of cancer, and the other 85 to 95% is everything else, which is us, our environment our food, diet, lifestyle, you know, um, stress, you know, all these other factors, sleep that play into whether or not we get cancer. You guys have all heard of what's called the epigenetic phenomenon, right? Epigenetics, which is basically the study of how our genes are turned on or off 
by environmental factors. The stuff we do, the stuff we actually have control of, which is super exciting because that means that we actually can make a difference. I love to see this as empowering because there is a lot that we can do. Sometimes I think it's easy and probably easy is to just blame and say, oh, I got that BRCA gene or, oh, I have that CA125 gene. Oh, I have that whatever gene. And so I'm destined to have cancer. And that is not actually the case. Think about there's, there's been studies looking at, for example, Japanese women in Japan with basically identical genetic makeup as far as having the BRCA gene for breast cancer. And in Japan, their rates of breast cancer are two to three times less than they are here in the U.S. And these are basically Japanese women with nearly identical genes and sort of historical genetic risk factors. But these same women, once they come to the U.S., their breast cancer risk goes up two and three-fold So we can ask ourselves, did the genes change? Did the genetic code change? Not really. They got the same genes. What changed? That 85 to 95%, everything else, right? The environment, the diet, the lifestyle choices, and all these kinds of things. And so although many would say, ah, what a curse that is that I could potentially affect my future, you know, I could help increase my risk of cancer because I have a crappy diet, I don't exercise, I have too much stress. But I would say, conversely, you potentially have the power to beat cancer. If you have cancer, you can beat it. If you don't have cancer, you can improve your chances so that you never get it. There's always something you can do. You got this, and that is empowering. There is so much that we can do because most of it is what we call epi genetic, which is all the other things that we do, that we experience, that we are in as far as our environment and all of that has a lot to do with whether these cancer genes, which we may have in our DNA, in our genetic material, whether they're turned on or off. So I think that's exciting. It's empowering. And I hope you will get that message. Anyway, I could talk about that for a long time. It's super interesting. There's, um, A lot of interesting discussion on the origins of cancer. I mean, if you just think about it from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we can sort of argue between Lamarck's, you know, evolutionary theory versus Darwin and how they're different, how both of them have things that make sense. We can talk about, um, I think one of one of my favorites is is uh, Thomas Seyfried, and he, hey, he's got a cool name, right? Thomas, (laughs) Thomas Seyfried. He's, he's written a lot about cancer as a metabolic disease. And this is what I discussed at the outset, that it's in the cells, in those organelles, those small factories called the mitochondria, where there's a problem. And we talked about this, right? That cancer cells primarily like to use glucose because their mitochondria are jacked up. They can't use the ketone bodies like the rest of our cells can, including our brain. And so there is some metabolic um, undertones here. And, and Seyfried, Thomas Seyfried, uh, writes a lot about this. Super interesting. Um, and I won't, uh, I won't get too into it, but, uh, uh, he'll talk about what's called the Warburg effect. That's W-A-R-B-U-R-G. 
And that goes into, you know, sort of the metabolic uh, process in the mitochondria, which, of course, is the powerhouse of the cell, the energy factory, which uses oxygen, right? When we use oxygen as the transporter of electricity, the so-called electron transport chain to develop all that additional energy that can't be developed by simply burning glucose through fermentation, you get like 16 times the energy production when you use oxygen in the mitochondria. When you use things like ketones, it's super energy efficient. You get tons of energy, but you do use oxygen. And cancer cells mostly don't like oxygen. They actually just like glucose and they can metabolize the glucose just fine without oxygen. And so actually some of the up-and-coming treatments, additional adjunctive treatments for cancer involve not only things like intermittent fasting to sort of starve the cancer cells, but also oxygen therapy like hyperbaric oxygen therapy because the cancer cells don't like oxygen that much. And the normal cells, they're fine with oxygen. In fact, it helps them metabolize the ketone bodies or the fats better. So super interesting. But basically, Warburg um, described this point that respiration, as it occurs inside the mitochondria, was jacked up in cancer. (laughs) Because they don't like to use it, right? They just like to metabolize glucose through the process of fermentation that doesn't necessarily like or need oxygen. So I don't want to get too much into that, but the byproduct is lactate, buildup of lactate. We all know how we feel when we got a bunch of buildup of lactate through what's called anaerobic metabolism. Like if we just do arm or bicep curls all day long, what happens the next day? We get sore, right? Because that's not usually (laughs) a real aerobic type of activity, right? It's hard to get your heart rate up just doing bicep curls, and we produce as a byproduct lactic acid, which shows that fermentation pathway or use of, of glycogen or, or glucose, and we get the buildup of lactate. So that can also be followed with the cancer cells metabolism. You can look at mitochondria. I'll, I'll uh, put in the show notes a real interesting article that talks about this, and there's even pictures of sort of the normal mitochondria, that powerhouse, and then the abnormal one in cancer, and there's one specifically in this article I recall looking at of uh, the glioblastoma multiforme, which is a cancer cell typically causing a brain cancer that it's showing how deranged and odd looking and dysfunctional the mitochondria is in this type of cancer as opposed to a regular uh, cell. So anyway, super interesting, the metabolic, right? The metabolic disease of cancer as discussed by my friends, right? Thomas Seyfried and Warburg. There's a whole bunch of others. Um, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes, but super interesting. Um, but when you think about how this <clears throat> applies to modern-day cancer treatment, um, it goes beyond you know, just the genes, much beyond that, right? It goes into metabolism, which has much more far-reaching effects. So super, super interesting. Um, in fact, I wanted to share this one Portion, which I found fascinating because we have had a couple pretty interesting genetic treatments uh, for a couple of cancers uh, that you guys have probably heard of out there. Um, one is the Philadelphia chromosome in CML, chronic myelogenous um, leukemia, and that targeted therapy is called Gleevec, and it actually is targeted better and it works better in sort of the uh, 
when, when looking at this metabolic pathway and actually if there is some ketosis and some fasting um, or uh, carbohydrate reduction, it actually works even better. Um, and I just found that really interesting um, because it's a very underutilized potential treatment, right? Either the, let's say, um, you know, treatment or additional adjunctive treatment of cancer with things like intermittent fasting or being in ketosis, right? Um, these things can actually help um, adjunctively, which means in addition to normal therapies, it can help decrease the growth of cancer. And, and also with uh, like the ERB2 uh, positive receptors, that's uh, a targeted treatment that is being used nowadays called uh, Herceptin, H-E-R-C-P-T-I-N, uh, as well as, like I mentioned, the Gleevec, which is targeting that BCR-ABLE uh, Philadelphia chromosome. These um, signaling pathways are actually linked to glucose, linked to the glucose metabolism. And so it's interesting because if you practice intermittent fasting or carbohydrate restriction, um, it even helps these work better. <laughs> I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Super interesting as far as um, how you can get your chemotherapy to be even more effective through intermittent fasting and through fasting, uh, both before and after um, chemotherapy. Also with radiation, that also becomes more effective with intermittent fasting. Super interesting. And then we can throw in things like adding on hyperbaric oxygen as well. And there'll be sort of a synergistic effect. So once again, I'm not attempting to treat, diagnose, um, or give you medical advice, but I think these things are super, super interesting, and I just wanted you guys to have all the information about them here, and I, um, I just couldn't help but uh, talk about some of these super, super, super interesting things um, that occur with cancer, cancer treatment, and free therapy, right? Adding things like intermittent fasting or a low-carbohydrate diet, those things are free, right? <laughs> those things are free, and um, they can be super helpful. And why would that be helpful? Let's just take the case of intermittent fasting. Why would that be helpful at all? Well, firstly, you're decreasing the amount of glucose available to the cancer cells. We've talked about this before. So we're also decreasing not only the glucose available, but when the glucose is not being put in our mouths, right, during that 13, 14-hour nighttime fast. Also, insulin is not going up. And insulin, as we've talked about many times before, is a growth factor. It's a sort of growing or anabolic hormone, if you will. It makes things grow, including cancer. In cancer, there is something called insulin-like growth factor. And its rates of uh, presence and as it increases, it goes along with insulin. So as insulin goes up, so does insulin-like growth factor. And these things can make cancer grow at a quicker or higher rate. So one of the treatments is to make insulin and insulin-like growth factor less prominent or decrease the amount of that. And that can be done super easily and free through a nighttime fast or a circadian fast because not only will that decrease insulin, but it decreases the insulin-like growth factor, which will decrease the cancer growth, which is really cool, which is probably why that study I mentioned in breast cancer survivors showed a decrease um, 
recurrence rate in the um, breast cancer in those that were practicing an overnight fast or a circadian fast. Another thing that happens during this overnight fast or a simple circadian fast or an intermittent fast of a shorter duration, 12 to 14 hours, is something called autophagy. And we've talked about this before. Autophagy is sort of that cellular housekeeping, you know, the microscopic um, housekeeping that happens at night while we're not eating. We're allowing our bodies to sort of clean up all the damaged cells, damaged DNA, things that are at risk for developing cancer. We clean all this stuff up at night and if we, or whenever we're fasting. And if we don't do this, we don't have autophagy the potential for these bad cells or the damaged DNA to not be, you know, cleaned up, so to speak, is much higher. So we want to have a period of, of rest from putting something in our mouth. And that's also AIDS, autophagy, autophagy. So super, super, super interesting. There's a book also that I've looked at recently called Keto for Cancer. It talks a lot about the ketogenic diet and cancer, and we've touched on sort of the hallmarks of why this uh, may be important. Um, I found that book pretty fascinating. Um, and uh, when we think about why cancer might happen at all, basically, whether or not we know it, and I know this may be maybe earth-shattering, maybe you find it hard to believe, but the actual facts are that all of us at any given time at any point in our lives, have some cancer in our bodies at any particular time. But it's at a low level, a microscopic level, and with our mechanisms of repair, fixing the DNA or getting rid of the damaged cells, like through autophagy and things, we are able to keep that cancer at bay, and it never actually develops into a disease. So basically, all of us at any given point in time have some cancer in our bodies, and we have natural, normal, existing repair techniques that actually can take care of that if it's at a low level. Now, if it gets out of control, it might overwhelm our natural autophagy and other um, processes where we can clean that up and fix it. But all of us have some form of cancer at some low level all the time going on in our bodies. That's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. Eye-opening. So, so it really is important that 85% of what we do, right? Our diet, our activity levels, our stress levels, our sleep, all those things that we start thinking about that are in our control or under our control, they start to matter even more because all of us have cancer in our bodies all the time, but hopefully it's at a low level and we can take care of it through these uh, optimizations of these processes because, as I mentioned, there are normal growth hormone-like um, messaging that occurs like through insulin that can make these small subsets of cells go crazy, you know, and that's what we don't want. So keeping our insulin down is super important because insulin is a anabolic hormone, if you will. In fact, it's probably the body's major anabolic hormone and it's getting secreted every time we eat anything that has carbohydrates or proteins. That insulin goes up. So there's a really interesting article from the Journal of Endocrinology and Metabolism. I'll put this in the show notes as well. It talks all about insulin and insulin-like growth factor and how it can get you know, cancer to grow more than one would expect. And then you know, 
sort of as a corollary, how this is important to us, you know, I'll just remind you of our podcast with Dr. Bickman on how we can keep insulin low because insulin can act like a growth factor. And what they found in this article in the journal um, of endocrinology and metabolism is that when insulin is up, insulin-like growth factor is also up. And in people who had insulin up and insulin-like growth factor up, they had a higher chance of getting cancer. So we want to keep these things down. <laughs> and we can do that through limiting our carbohydrate intake and limiting the hours that we eat. If we're eating 20 out of 24 hours, that ain't good. Our insulin is going to be up all the time. It's going, to promoting, it's going to be promoting cellular growth. And what is uncontrolled cellular growth? That is the definition of cancer, uncontrolled cellular growth. So we want to we regulate that, and we can do so by getting our insulin down because when insulin's up, so is insulin-like growth factor. And these things have been shown to be related to, you know, grow cancer, basically. And why do you think, let's pause for a second and just think, why isn't this being studied more? Doing things like intermittent fasting or prolonged fasting or ketosis, right? Doing a, uh, you know, Atkins-style diet um, and doing a ketogenic diet to either help with treatment or preventing cancer. Well, why isn't this done very much? Because these techniques have been around for thousands of years. In fact, our ancestors did them, right? They could do these techniques without a notebook, without counting calories. They did these techniques and guess what? They didn't get much cancer. You know, compared to us, we're getting cancer at much more elevated rates. And probably the reason here is these are free therapies. These are free treatment and prevention strategies. There's no money in it. Nobody's making money off doing a study on ketogenic diets and cancer. Nobody's making money off doing intermittent or circadian fasting and cancer. No drug company is getting the big bucks. And so these kinds of things, unfortunately, haven't been studied that much, but there are now mounting data and evidence to show that they are useful and they are helpful. And I would say they are empowering, right? Because they are under our control. We get to decide if we want to do an overnight fast, a circadian fast. That is in our court. We can decide that. We can do that. If we want to do a low-carb diet, we get to decide that. And what I'll say is that what I'm not preaching here is that we do continuous ketosis. I'm not saying that. In fact, I don't do a ketogenic diet. But what I do do is I get my body in ketosis through my daily fasting, which is a simple nighttime circadian fast. That's what I do. I do 14 to 18 hours of a nighttime circadian fast. Last night, I think I just did a simple 16-hour fast. My last food, I finished up with dinner. We had kind of a late dinner. We finished at 8. And then today, got up early, got my exercise, went for a surf, and then didn't eat until about noon. So that's 16 hours. That's kind of my usual average. Sometimes I do less on the weekend. Sometimes I do 14 because I like to make a, a big egg and avocado and, and uh, our famous family recipe of uh, coconut oil uh, waffles on Sunday mornings with some fruit. And we generally eat, you know, 10 or 11. So I might have a 14 or 15 hour fast on the weekends. But almost every night I do a minimum 14-hour circadian fast. And I do that 
because number one, I feel freaking awesome, <laughs> but also because I know that as I do that, my insulin levels are staying low. And when they stay low, my chances of fueling cancer are also low because when our insulin is up, that's how cancer grows. And so this is a simple free therapy, the overnight fast or circadian fast. Also, during the daytime, when I do eat, I focus on real food. Because as I've explained in previous podcasts, all carbohydrates are not created equal. Now, I'm not a zero-carb guy. I don't flex my muscles, you know, because my ketosis is so high that I have massive ketones in my blood because I never eat sugar. That's not me. I eat everything, but primarily real, whole, natural food. I try not to eat stuff with a label, or if it does have a label, I try to eat stuff with five ingredients or less without processed sugars, high fructose corn syrup, seed oils, things like that I try to avoid. And by so doing, the rise in insulin and glucose when I eat, say, some blueberries is going to be less high than if I were to just reach for that granola bar that has processed sugars and flours in it. And so by not getting that big spike in glucose and then insulin, we can also reduce our rates of insulin resistance and hopefully cancer. And that's a simple Dietary hack, just eat real food. <laughs> eat real food because that way we can eliminate, hopefully, our insulin resistance, which is present in almost 9 out of 10 of us, 88% of us. Go back and listen to Dr. Bickman's show with me uh, 20 podcasts ago. It's so important to reduce our insulin resistance, which is at the root of almost all disease. And it's free. It's easy. We can do this. So there's a lot more to discuss here, and I, I don't want to keep going because it's, uh, I think uh, we're up coming close to 50 minutes. I like to keep things under an hour, but there's so much more out there on research with the ketogenic diet in cancer, with um, also intermittent or circadian fasting in cancer. I briefly mentioned um, there's been some research looking at when one does have cancer, they are undergoing treatment, which I would recommend. I'm not saying that you don't do treatment and you only do ketosis or a ketogenic diet and you don't do any other treatment. I'm absolutely not saying that. I would avail yourself of all the therapies out there and in addition, add in restricting carbohydrates, especially highly processed carbohydrates, and add in things like intermittent or circadian fasting because there have been several studies that show like if you're getting chemotherapy, for example, if you fast for 24 hours prior to the chemotherapy, you can drink all the water you want. You can have some lemon water. You can have coffee as long as it doesn't have basically calories in it, right? As long as you don't put creamer, you don't put sugar, you know, any additives. You just drink black coffee. That's fine. Or tea is fine too, as long as you're not adding sugar to it. But basically you do a fast of 24 hours prior to your chemo and or radiation and 24 hours after. So it's a total of 48 hours, 24 hours before, 24 hours after. And this has been shown in both cases to optimize to make more effective both chemo and radiation. And why is that? Because all those things we talked about earlier in the show, <laughs> right? We're decreasing the available glucose, right? We're not starving cancer completely because we always make a little bit of glucose in our liver through gluconeogenesis, but we're limiting the glucose available. And so those cancer cells are going to want to just grab whatever's available. And, and, you know, with chemo or radiation, they're grabbing that chemo, they're grabbing the radiation and they're taking it into the cell and hopefully they'll take it in at a higher rate than the normal cells. So this technique, when added to traditional therapy, 
will maximize its effect on the cancer cells and will minimize the effect on the normal cells. So that's empowering. That's exciting. There is more than just the traditional therapy. Traditional therapy is all good. And I'm so grateful that there's people out there studying how they can develop a new chemotherapeutic. But one last thing I wanted to share is that any particular cancer in any particular person, let's take breast cancer, for example, there are on average approximately 100 or more different mutations, genetic mutations going on in one individual in their type of cancer. So even though we can treat in a quote-unquote targeted approach with you know something like Gleevec for CML or the other one I mentioned for breast cancer, that's treating one genetic mutation. In any given cancer, of, of especially the most common types like breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, colon cancer, some of the most common ones, they typically have in one individual up to 100 or more genetic mutations. So they can't effectively target all 100 of those because that would mean 100 drugs. I mean, holy crap, nobody's going to tolerate 100 drugs, right? I've seen a lot of people on a lot of meds, but I don't know if I've ever seen 100 and certainly not 100 different chemotherapies. So, so these things are helpful to have targeted uh, approaches with these targeted approaches of certain cancers, breast cancer, CML, things like that. But it's not the panacea because there's so much genetic mutation out there. Something, however, that affects all the cells, which is super exciting, is metabolism. Metabolism, like what Thomas Seyfried talked about, the metabolic um, cause for cancer. Metabolism affects all cancer cells because all cancer cells want to survive and they want to have glucose and they want to steal glucose from wherever they can get it. And if there's less glucose around, guess what? They're not going to grow as much. So yes, sugar is related to cancer. It is important to consider these natural free therapies that we talked about, like intermittent fasting, circadian fasting, limited uh, use of carbohydrates, especially the non-natural ones. The, holy crap, the ones coming with the label, high fructose, corn syrup, processed sugars and carbs. Yes, we should try to avoid all those things. And we should avail ourselves of all the therapy that's available. So, wow. <laughs> I know that's a lot. I, <laughs> woo, we got through a lot of material, super important stuff. I'll put some links to the studies that I mentioned in the show notes. I think you'll enjoy that. Um, just super, I think, interesting information as well as empowering. The fact that we get to decide 85% of it, maybe up to 95% of it, depending on which study you read, I think is awesome. It's so empowering. It's given me a whole lot to think about because... There's a lot out there. There's a lot to avail yourself of. But if 85 to 95% of it is in your hands, why not optimize that? Why not make the most of that with your diet, with your movement, vitamin M, with your vitamin D, with your mind, your brain health, positive thinking. These things are so important. Your sleep, all of this you get to be in charge of. And I just... That excites me, guys. There's so much we can do. I'm super pumped. I'm super pumped to share with you my new course coming up. Are you guys excited? It's going to be awesome. It's coming up in seven days. Holy crap, guys. Seven days I'm going to have my new course out. It's going to have videos. It's going to have PDFs. It's going to explain some very simple, practical steps. You know I'm not one for keeping track of calories and everything you put in your mouth, but it's going to have some really simple, simple, practical steps that you guys can use to get to your healthiest healthy. Aloha.